Welcome to the Documentary Photography Review Podcast with me, Chris King, and co-presenter Rebecca Enderby. In this episode, we talk to freelance photographer Hannah Mornemont, based in Brighton in the UK. Hannah's photography is focused on people, places, and humanitarian issues far and wide, and she has over 10 years' experience within the humanitarian and overseas development sector. However, Hannah's most recent project has been carried out closer to home. Food Bank Britain started in the summer of 2013 and explores food poverty in the UK and the work of food banks in trying to ensure the provision of emergency food supplies to those who need it. Hannah explored behind the scenes of the Trussell Trust, the largest food bank network in the UK, as well as the lives of some of its beneficiaries. We discuss how Hannah went about gaining the trust and access to some of the people who are reliant on food banks, her decision to photograph the food provided, the production of a newspaper to showcase the work and the stories, as well as the ways in which Hannah wants to take the project forward. For show notes with information on Hannah and her work, as well as the links to all the photographers, organizations and institutions mentioned during the interview, please visit the Documentary Photography Review website at documentaryphotoreview.com forward slash podcasts and navigate to Hannah's podcast page. To help us gain exposure for the work of the photographers we interview and the stories they document, please do share this podcast far and wide. And it would help us greatly if you went onto iTunes and left a rating and a review. If you have any comments or suggestions related to the podcast, please feel free to contact me directly at chris at documentaryphotoreview.com. And now, here's our interview with Hannah Mornemont. Enjoy. If we start with... Uh, how did you get into photography and into documentary photography in particular? Well, I've always been really interested in making pictures, images. Um, from the age of sort of six, I was creative, I was drawing all the time, and art was my sort of thing. Um, and actually, I thought I was going to be a painter, um, a sort of famous, um, downtrodden, poor painter um, of, the, of the likes of Michelangelo, etc. So I, I studied painting, uh, that was my thing, that was my route in. Uh, I used photography for my painting. But it, there got to a point where there was actually more that I wanted to say rather than just painting pictures. I still love painting, I'm very figurative in my work. Um, and photography, sort of by the age of 19, I, I was seduced by the romance of Magnum and black and white and Cartier-Bresson and not cropping anything and telling stories and so that's how I fell into photography. And having been a painter before, how do you think that sort of influenced the photography that you did? I think it's given me a lot more patience mm. with, with my work and also composition. I'm really keen on composing through the lens and not sort of cropping heavily just because I've got a bit in here and a bit in there. So especially with film back in the day when I did shoot film, it was really important to really compose your shot. I mean, now you can shoot very quickly everything on digital and dump stuff and it doesn't cost you anything. But when, when you were shooting 36 frames on a roll, you had to be quite choosy. So I think that really influenced and helped mm -hmm. help my work. And you've made the switch to digital. Do you still use film ever? Or well, really exciting. I've just come back from Italy um, working on a project um, about the Anzio landings. It was the 70th anniversary. My grandfather was wounded, fatally wounded at Anzio. So I went back and I took my Hasselblad, which I dusted down. I had serviced at great expense and absolutely loved it. Oh, wow. Yeah. I haven't got the pictures back yet, um, but you know, I'm really looking forward to, to doing that. And I probably will start going back to film. But yes, I shoot digital. digital. Yeah. And you've recently completed uh, a master's at the LCC, uh, an MA in photojournalism, documentary photography. What did you gain from doing that master's? I think I gained the time to really think and explore my work. Um, time that I hadn't given myself before for financial reasons or, or commissions. So it was nice to just have a year off and really focus on tightening up my storytelling. Uh, it's given me the confidence to walk away and say, yes, I can, I can tackle a difficult subject um, photographically and humanitarianly and all the other aspects that go with it. 
So I think that's the main thing that I gained from And it's from nice doing to be that. given that space, isn't it, to really work on something? And Absolutely. Yeah. And to have um, your peers there, to talk to them, experienced tutors who, you know, you do get a lot of feedback from. So that was a, a very, it's been a very important year, I think. Which, when you're working as a photographer, um, as we were sort of saying before, it can be very isolating. So that's a chance for to get other people involved. Absolutely, and to yeah. see how other people are working. Because you get stuck in your bubble and you yeah. think, yes, this is my work, this is how I work. But actually, there are so many areas you can improve, um, things that maybe you shouldn't be doing, things that you are doing correctly, that you were concerned about. So having, having that environment to be able to talk about it was, was really thrilling, actually. And have you maintained contact with people from the Masters? Yes, it was a very social year, so there's a lot of social things going on. Um, it was a very mixed year. Um, I think there were 31 of us, but the majority came from overseas. So we had all those wonderful cultures. Um, yeah, a very, a very social year, and I miss not seeing them every week. Right. And in terms of your project in Italy, you say that uh, it's really enhanced your storytelling ability. Did you really see that in how you approached your project in Italy? I did actually, because I've always been quite nervous about working on archival things. I usually like to photograph something that's happening now. And this project is very much an archival piece. My grandfather is no longer with us. In fact, he died when my father was one. So he didn't know his father. So really, for me, I'm doing a little uh, pilgrimage of, of his memory. My father spent most of his life looking for his father. So he found all sorts of people involved in his capture, nursing him, um, stretcher bearers, all those sorts of people, who sadly are no longer with us now I've taken up this project. But to go back and photograph the areas where he landed and got dug in and got captured, I. I think the masters gave me that sort of freedom to go and photograph it and not be concerned that I was photographing a field because actually the field was really important. Mm -hmm. So much history. Yeah. And you've also done the project before though, haven't you, when you were mapping somebody in your family's path? That's right. My um, great great uncle was um, he was an Antarctic explorer and he tried to get on Scott's expedition to the pole and Sadly, he sort of got there about three days after Captain Oates, and so the, the trip was all, all secure. And he was passed on to Shackleton, who was trying to get his uh, transantarctic crossing sorted, um, but that he'd run out of money. So he passed him on to an Australian explorer who'd been down to Antarctica before, called Sir Douglas Mawson. So he went, went off with him as a dog handler and surveyor, and sadly, he fell down a crevasse on the last sledging journey and died very young, he was only in his 20s. Um, but the, the story from that where Douglas Mawson and the Swiss skier Xavier Mertz tried to get back to base camp is an extraordinary story of survival and one that we don't really hear because we, we tend to sort of, we're quite Shackleton and Scott centric in this country, mm. which is brilliant. But Mawson is an is a amazing man, wonderful scientist, uh, we should champion him more. <laughs> that must have been campaign. a really interesting trip. Challenging photographically? Very challenging. In fact, it was one of those stories where people say things go wrong all the time, you know. Let me tell you about a story that went wrong. So I uh, was hooked up with the scientists. They were very excited I was coming. I was a descendant of one of the originals team who'd gone down to Commonwealth Bay. And so I flew over to Australia, got my kit, vast expense got there and they said we don't have a permit for you to go on the ice sorry and no matter you know all my persuasive powers my arguing you know everything nothing worked and I was to remain on the ship and just watch what was going on on the ice and I might be able to go you know occasionally just to do some stuff and I'd already arranged to have an exhibition at the Royal Geographical Society and the Scott Polar Research Institute. So I was racking my brains thinking, <laughs> how can I turn this around yeah. to, to make this work? Um, and I had my, a copy of my ancestors' diaries and was reading it while I was looking at Commonwealth Bay and picked out bits 
from his diary and thought, right, when I get a chance to get on the ice, I'm going to go to those little sections and I'm going to photograph them beautifully. And then underneath, I will have the words from his diary. So instead of it being a project about the renovation of Mawson's huts, it just became a very personal project oh. about my great, great uncle. And I think it worked much better, actually. Right, yeah. Much more successful piece. Mm -hmm. That's interesting how things can turn out then, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, and you've got to, you've, you've got to turn it around. Yeah. You can't just sit there going, oh, well, I I can't do this. You've got to think, well, how can I make this work? Because, you know, I'm here. This is a great story and, you know, we'll work, we'll work around it. Amazing. Yeah. You know, that's, that's one of quite a few different projects that you've had quite in extreme environments and overseas in particular. But you, your most recent project, excluding the Italian one, is Food Bank Britain. So, from, from all those kind of previous projects, how did you make your way to exploring that particular subject? Well, I've worked with NGOs probably since about 1995, but never in this country. I've done a few smaller projects for local charities, but I really wanted to do something important and close to home. And this particular project really caught my imagination because of my my love of food and I and I think it's really important that we you know can afford to eat we live in a first world country with a welfare state so clearly something is going wrong yeah. where people who are in work can't afford to feed their family I knew it was going to be a massive challenge because um, poverty here in the UK is a very very different visual being to poverty in Africa and I just wanted to get across real people with, you know, genuine issues and try and tell their story rather than all the things we were reading in the press about people going to food banks and selling food to buy drugs or you know, benefit scroungers yeah. or people who yeah. just watch Jeremy Carl all day. It's just not true and, you know, these people, there are so many people who are relying now on food banks. It's extraordinary. And can you maybe explain a little bit? about what a food bank is and how it functions, how it uh, obtains its food and the likes? Yeah, well I, I live in Brighton and I wanted to see if there were any food banks in Brighton um, and there aren't any specific food banks. Um, there's a sort of cooperative called Fair Share but it, it was a very different beast to the one that I was looking at or looking for. So I googled and found the Trussell Trust which is the largest food bank network in the UK. They have over 400 outlets. And it started in 2000, an amazing couple um, who were actually working in Bulgaria at the time and were trying to raise funds for a project in Bulgaria. And a woman in their hometown in Salisbury phoned them up and said, you know, what about me? I can't feed my children. And they thought, well, you know, this is scandalous, this can't go on, and so the first food bank was started. Had they not sort of known or realised before that these issues were happening in the UK, or had they, I to her call was a sort of uh, wake-up call to them, or, or was it just that they'd just always sort of focused overseas? I think, with all of us, I don't think we realised the scale of the problem. No, I, I agree, I think it's yeah. a hidden hunger. Mm. I think yeah. we very much, you know, we're very much aware of um, the homeless situation, um, Salvation Army's been going for, you know, forever, all these faith-based charities. But I think with, with something like the crisis that's going on now, people are really embarrassed by it, mm. you know, and they don't know where to turn or, or what to do. And, you know, it's, it's just an appalling situation to be in. Mm. So the actual um, food bank network, Trussell Trust, um, as I said, they have 400 outlets and it works like a franchise so an, um, a community will get together and they will buy the franchise from the Trussell Trust which enables them to have all the advertising all the support and someone will come down and show them how it works and how to set up the food bank uh, which is based on an American style of food banks sort of warehouse system so it's 97% donated by people um, so there's no big organisation that's donating food. Right. Um, so it's just donated by the public? Donated by the public. Via supermarkets? Via supermarkets, yeah. yeah. So once upon a time they used to go out and sort of volunteers would stand by the supermarket doors, whereas now they just have 
they can afford to just have a dump in because it's become such a, a well-known thing in that particular supermarket. Right. Sainsbury's, Tesco, Wait Waitrose, they're all involved. Mm -hmm. that's, I didn't realise that it was purely from public donations and 90% no, that's extraordinary, quite, isn't it? quite it is. something. Yeah. Because Fair Share, as you know, uses a different model so it does yes. obtain food uh, from directly from the supermarkets. Yeah. So it's quite impressive that the public themselves are able to kind of sustain yeah. uh, the Trussell Trust and the 400 food banks that currently exist. And where is the nearest one to Brighton then? There are two. There's one in Worthing and one in Eastbourne. Right. And the one in Eastbourne is actually the third largest in the country. So that's where I focused uh, my project on. And they were just so welcoming when I got down there, really enthusiastic about... Uh, what I wanted to do mm -hmm. and realised that I was very genuine and had integrity and wasn't just trying to find that one person who cheated the system right, and then yeah. I really wanted to sort of understand how the system worked, why people volunteered and talk to people who, who used the food bank. And how did you sort of um, get that across your, the genuine message you wanted to tell? Is that just through kind of repeated phone calls and talking to them and meeting to them to, to sort of build that trust? Well it was quite interesting because I'm, I'm everyone I met, I met at the food bank, mm -hmm. so they have a little sort of waiting area uh, where people come in with, with their forms, their referral forms from sort of frontline communities in Eastbourne and you have volunteers that will chat to them, ask them how they are, sit and listen to them if they've got any problems then take down the list of They'll go through the list of what they can have from the food bank. You know, would they like meat or fish, tea or coffee, that kind of thing. I hope that people see that when I talk about something, I'm quite passionate about it. And the volunteers would be the first people to talk to um, clients, as they call them, beneficiaries, as I sort of used to think of them as. And they would say, we've got a photographer in who is doing a really important story about food banks and is looking for volunteers. Is it something that you would be interested in? And if they were interested, then I would sort of come out from the dark corner and sit down and explain who I was, what my project was, what I wanted to do. And from there, they would then say if they were interested or not. If they were interested, we would exchange phone numbers. Then I'd phone them, I'd give them a day to think about it, to go and talk to their family. And then I'd phone them up the next day and hopefully they'd say yes and we would arrange to meet and then the process began. But I went through about 70 people oh, right. wow. and eventually got three. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. So, so quite a few were a bit hesitant about it. I think so. I think people are very wary of um, photographers, mm. to be honest. I think they were very keen to talk to me. I could have done hundreds of interviews and podcasts, but photographs were scary. Mm. You know, people might recognise them. Were they embarrassed about the situation? Yeah. Mm. Very much so. What do you think it was that inspired, motivated the three that did accept to actually accept and participate and, and kind of overcome any concerns that I they had? I think they just wanted to tell me their story, um, especially with um, John and Gavin. were very keen. They were um, both single men, and I think there was an element of nobody listening at all. But, you know, what I really wanted to do with this project is not talk about these people as, you know, they are victims of the current situation, but they're not victims. They've, they've got lives, they're getting on with their lives, they want to get on with their lives. It's just there are holes in the system where they've fallen through and are struggling. And do they both work? Ian's looking for work. Mm -hmm. Um, and has, he had left the country for a bit and had come back and was struggling to find work. Mm. Gavin was, he was signed off work. Right. He um, had a few other issues that he was dealing with. Yeah. And so the benefits that they're on aren't enough to, no. to cover food costs? No. You interview the guy who runs the Eastbourne Food Bank and he, he says that he wants to see a food bank in every city in the UK. Um, do you subscribe to that philosophy? I think that really alarmed me when he said it yeah. because you know it was almost as if it was sort of like that kind of Tesco Metro thing um, you know let's we'll have one here we'll have one there but actually when when he talked about it 
and you realise that there are people that are having to travel a long way to go to a food bank. Right. We need it, unfortunately. So this is an unfortunate sign of the times, and it's not the Trussell Trust trying to take over the world. It is a genuine, genuine desire to help those in need. And I think it is on its way. I think you know, they're popping up all over the place. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because, by, because the point is we need to address the root causes of these things. Yes. And, um, the solution isn't to have lots of food banks. But at the same time, as you've said, lots of people have to travel and they're, they're needed more and more. Yeah, it's, um, but it's complex a complex situation. It is very complex and we, I think we've lost our sense of community in this country. And actually the food banks are sort of bringing a community back together in a way. Uh, we've, you know, we've become quite isolated with, with our worlds and our work and stuff like that. And, you know, once upon a time where women would have coffee mornings or do things like that and help others and people talk to each other. We don't talk quite so much now. And I think in a way the food banks are, they're just really the sort of, uh, the sort of byproduct of what people are looking for. Mm. So you think, that's interesting, you think it brings the community together. It doesn't kind of ostracise some parts of the community that have to use the food banks. I don't think so because people are donating, so yeah. Yeah. you know it brings everybody together. And people are volunteering at the market. They're volunteering. Yeah. The volunteer recipient client dynamic. You say it's a it's kind of generating a community. Do you mean amongst the recipients or amongst the volunteers or the two together. both the two I together? I think all of it actually. Yeah. I've I've got a quote I'd just like to read um, from one of the volunteers. Um, the Trussell Trust is a faith-based right. organisation, so they are, you know, they have Christian values, and I think that that's very important to them um, to be seen to be giving. And I interviewed one volunteer who said something so eloquent when I asked him about volunteering, and he said the best thing about volunteering is that it's actually about putting your faith into action. It can be demonstrated, it can be seen, it can be understood, it can be measured. We do five or six tons of food a month. At last we have a good, we have got a gospel that can be statistically supported. And in this day and age, it's an absolute, it's absolutely critical that people see the church in action, not just hear about it. It's not a sales campaign, it's a demonstration of love. And I think they genuinely believe that. It isn't, so the Trussell Trust wanting to have a food bank in every town is a demonstration of love. It's, it's not a, a sales pitch. And the, the franchise model, does that, is there kind of some central body that's kind of oversees? So say your access to the Eastbourne uh, Food Bank, do they have a degree of autonomy that means that they can say, yes, we're going to allow you in? Or do they have to go through some sort of hierarchy to kind of give you access? And I think they have a sense of autonomy, but I went through Salisbury, which is their head office, right. and they said, oh, speak to Howard at Eastbourne, he's amazing, he'll look after you. And so that was that. He was amazing and he did look after me. Yeah. And the people that um, access the food banks, um, so you, you said you sort of spoke to, to 70 people, is it a really diverse kind of demographic or were you surprised by the people there? It was very ordinary and I don't mean that in a patronising way. Yeah. You know, you're not really sure what to expect at all. Um, I didn't know that much about food banks before I went and did this project. I'm so pleased I did. I mean, it's really opened my eyes to so many different things on my doorstep. So there isn't really a because no, I think in the media, as you've mentioned, there's a kind of a stereotyped idea of who mm. would be accessing these banks, and that was broken when, yeah. Completely, yeah. completely broken. Some of these are hard-working people that maybe haven't been paid by their employer, you know, or they, they in between benefits, and it's taken 12 weeks to change over their particular system or they're having to pay for a bedroom in their house and they can't swap to a smaller house because everyone's looking for smaller houses so they're having to pay an extra bedroom tax. So it's really, it's a really complex issue. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond the Trussell Trust, how many food banks are there in the UK, do you know? I don't. No. That's terrible of me, isn't it? I have no idea. I did meet a wonderful couple um, of ladies in Brighton who had set up an independent food bank, mm -hmm. but they were really, really struggling, and they were doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Um, but they were just—they were actually getting the wrong people coming in. 
good. And they were really finding it hard to uh, cover the costs of getting the food, sorting it out, having the venue. They were trying to make it into sort of knitting groups or, you know, baking cakes and that kind of thing to sort of bring more people in. But they were, unfortunately, that closed down. So there is a benefit then to buying into Trussell Trust's model and I and think franchise. so. You get the support. Yeah. To, to keep it going. And do you know off the top of your head how much it costs to set up a franchise? Yes, it costs um, £1,500 right. and then you pay £360 a year mm-hmm. to keep it going. Reasonable. Yeah. Um, and how long did you spend um, exploring the project? I spent about, probably about two months. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was research and a lot of it was talking to people. But once I found the people I wanted to work with, that, that was quite a quick process quick turnaround. And you say that you could have got lots of audio interviews, so I assume that means that you didn't. Did you you explore video or audio on any level at all throughout the project? No, I didn't. I wanted it. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It is (laughs) a wonderful thing, and I think when I explore this project further, it will be um, a lot more multimedia based, I think. But for the opening of it, I think having having a newspaper, having an explanation, having a history of food bank, interviews with volunteers, and then three subjects. It just worked so perfectly as, um, it's not a complete project by any means, it's the tip of the iceberg, but it was a, a really, I felt, a good way in. So the newspaper is a really, a really good thing, really interesting way to um, get the work out there. Can you tell us why, why you just chose to do that and, and the process behind making it? Okay. I felt it was a newspaper story, um, not just because it was in the press, but it's not a, I didn't feel it was a glossy story. My skills at multimedia aren't up to scratch, so I felt that I wanted, and I was exploring a photographic project, so it was very much going to be a stills process. And I think the newspaper gave me scope to actually really spread out a story, um, so you could, you've got much more space for different layouts, um, more text. I yeah. wanted to use their text, their words. So I was able to to explore that, and I felt that the newspaper really sort of was a bit ironic in a way in the fact that you know they were in the newspaper, but they were hoping very much not to be tomorrow's news. Mm. They they want to be off the page and out of the food bank. So there was that element of it as well. And it was distributed where? It wasn't distributed anywhere. Okay. <laughs> I had them had them all at my exhibition, and I, I basically passed them out to people who. Okay, so it's like you're distributing your work. exhibition then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was the the LCC That's graduates right. exhibition. Yes. Yeah. So you designed, you laid out the the newspaper yourself. And yeah. And how did you find that process of trying to convey the, the message that you wanted and, and kind of have it to the flow that you wanted of mm. the, the story? I found it a massive learning curve. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Um, photographers are renowned for being terrible at editing their own work. <laughs> yeah. So not only having to edit it, but then lay it out in, in a way that had you know, pace is really, really challenging, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm. And then including the text and everything. Yeah. yeah adds another layer to it. And how do you how do you edit? How do you self-edit? Get other people on board? Yes, yeah. definitely. So I'll I'll look at I'll look at everything that I've got and I tend to sort of group it together. So if I'm working on a story it will sort of have a flow. Um, and then obviously I'll take the ones out that I feel really aren't working at all. But I will put them to one side so that if anyone wanted to dip in and then I'll I'll start bringing people in to, to say what do you think? And who, who are those people? Other photographers or...? Other photographers, friends. Uh, friends, family. I think family can be quite critical. My mum's got an amazing eye. My dad is great at telling a story, so having those two influences really helps. Was the project and the newspaper self-funded? Yes, it was. Entirely? Entirely. Have you approached any newspapers or with, with the story? I haven't. Um, it was very interesting actually because Denise, who I photographed and interviewed for the project, she was very unsure about being part of it um, and I explained to her that it was only going to be my final show, etc. And when I told her that I was going to come and talk to you and that I was going to be putting my work up onto, onto the web, would she mind? She said, absolutely not. 
you did a brilliant job. Oh, okay, great. Okay. So yeah. that made me, actually, that was really worth it. Mm -hmm. I yeah. felt that I'd hit, hit the right button. Yeah. And would you think about approaching newspapers with it now? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Now I feel that you know, they, they feel very comfortable yeah. with, with how they've been portrayed and their voice it is their voice, it's not my voice. I think that I've, I would be more than happy to. Because you said it's their voice. I've just had a thought. Had you thought have you ever thought about doing um, participatory photography? Well, I actually felt this was quite a participatory thing because I was asking them how they felt in their own words and nothing was posed. It wasn't, I didn't want it to be about how I felt about the situation. So in many ways I felt it was quite a participatory mm -hmm. thing, although I was photographing it and, and writing it. It was very much their own their own voice. You, you went back and you did a, a second element to the project which was uh, documenting the food that is handed over to clients of the, the food bank, which I think was, it really adds another layer to the, the project uh, because it, it's something, it's important to give a human face to the whole, the whole story and, and the issue and, and the likes, but the actual food itself is something that is never actually documented. It's an unknown quantity in terms of how, how is it, what do people get and how much do they get. So I think it's, it's, it's really important, it really kind of puts a focus on, on how it's a great, great thing to have for those people to have their access to that, but at the same time it's a very limited amount of food um, that they're being handed over. Well I actually photographed those in the warehouse, Right. so everything was shot on location as it were. And literally the volunteer would come in and say, oh, I'm going to pack up for one family, you know, two children and maybe a baby. So they would put all the food together and I would then disrupt them and say, do you mind if I just stack that up and photograph it? Yeah. Um, and that was really inspired by a photograph I took of Ian's house or his room that he lived in, where he'd just been to the food bank and he had nowhere put his food and he had stacked it so neatly and I, I just there was something really moving about it mm. and that gave me the idea that actually we don't know what people get in their bags and maybe that would be quite an interesting part to the project. Yeah definitely because as, as Chris said it's it really brings home the the limit of it doesn't it how little they get. Yeah well the, it is little but actually it's quite a lot because it's only really meant to be an emergency for three days. Right, okay. So it's, it's ten meals, three days, and it's, they're really an emergency charity, but because of the situation in this country with all the welfare reforms, food going up, yeah. eating going up, wages staying static, people are using it more and more. Yeah, so it's, it's a large amount for its original use, but it's very little for how it's now being kind of needed. Yes, and yeah. I think if you look at it, you know, any person who loves food would look at it and go, oh, I could go to the shops and buy some lovely fresh vegetables that would go with that or whatever. But, you know, these people that are using the food bank can't do that. This mm. is it. This mm. is what they have. And uh, I also think, another comment, not a question, but that fact that you use those images in the centre, the, the two-page spread in the centre is really effective as well in terms of the layout because you've got that kind of human element um, that kind of, that is the foundations of the organisation in the food bank and uh, you touch upon one of the recipients and then you've got this two-page spread of, of just the food that's handed out to all these different groups of recipients or individuals, families, whatever, and then you go into more of the recipients. I think it's very well laid out. I think you've done a fantastic job. Oh, thank um, you. I wanted it to be quite a stark graphic yeah. image of itself, actually, just that double page spread. So rather than lots of images, I wanted it to come across as an overall image. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad it worked. No, I think it works very well, yeah. You're saying that this is just the tip of the iceberg and you've implied that you're going to explore this further. So how are you going to go about doing that, in what way? I think I'll probably start down the same, the same road, but I'd quite like to go round the country and sort of map the different areas of food banks. I mean, I think this is quite an important issue from, for a historical document as much as anything else. I mean, the, you know, we're living in sort of economically difficult times, but we're a first world country. So I think people in 150 years are going to look back and go, they have food banks? You know, this is crazy. So I think this is 
you know, an important part. And also, I think it's an important part for, for people to be able to use for lobbying their local governments. Yeah, definitely. There's a fantastic woman called Jack Monroe, I don't know if you've heard yeah. of her, yeah. who, I mean, non-stop, energy, energy, all the way. She's just incredible. So, you know, things like my project, her voice, and all the other people involved, hopefully things might change. Mm. Yeah. Would you think of creating a dedicated website for this? Because I'm of the belief that stories like this need a, a place that allows it to grow, allows it to be separate from any sort of portfolio or, or the likes, so then you can attach information and, and really engage on a map or whatever, so, so the project can grow within its own kind of uh, little ecosystem on the web. Is that something that you're going to explore? That's a great idea. Thank you. <laughs> she is now. Yeah. I am definitely going to explore that. Yeah. What a wonderful idea. No, thank you. No worries. Um, have you received um, good feedback from, from the work at the exhibition that you did? And I had amazing feedback. Great. I was really surprised actually because my, my course was full of incredible photographers and I felt I'd, I'd, my photography was not really the star of this project. The project was the star of this project and the people that were involved in it. So I was very surprised at the feedback I got and I'm really pleased. I think it's an important issue and I think a lot of people learned things from it and that's, as a concerned photographer, that's really what you're trying to get yeah, people to do, to, to learn about people in their environment that are struggling and how you can help. Yeah, definitely. It's a great motivation to push you forward then, isn't it, to get such good feedback? Yes. Yeah. So do you feel that you have achieved the aims that you set out to achieve? That's quite a difficult question, actually. Um, did I achieve the aims? Did you have specific aims? Or yes and no. I think it was, it was a project that evolved as it, as it happened. I didn't know where it was going to go, if I was honest. Mm -hmm. um, I just knew that I was really passionate about trying to do something about it, and I had no idea how I was going to do that. I think the fact that it worked, the fact that Denise was very happy for me to, to follow on and use the work um, that we produced together, then yes, I think from that point of view it did work. Mm. The fact that I haven't sort of been able to voice it further, then maybe the aim, you know, my aims haven't been fulfilled yet but that's an ongoing process. Yeah. Once you get that dedicated website. Once I get exactly. the dedicated website. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely um, buy you a beer for that one. <laughs> and uh, is there anything, because you struggled to get access to people, so you tried 70 people, got three, which obviously limited the scope of what you could actually obtain uh, visually. So were there any situations where looking back and, and having gone through all the imagery that you gathered and, and editing process. Was there any ever a time that you think, damn it, I wish I'd got that shot or a shot that was really key that didn't work out well? Were there any situations like Don't that? Don't all photographers feel that when they work <laughs> yeah. on a project? Yeah. It's, it's an ongoing concern, I think. Um, so yes, there were elements of, of that in this project. But you have to, there has to be a point where you have to be able to say, no, stop, now I've got to edit, now yeah. I've got to lay out, now I've got to tell the story. So because this is an ongoing project, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I can go back and revisit um, different elements of it and different aspects of it. That's the one also a good positive about working in the country that you're from, locally. Yes. You can go back and you can keep exploring, you're not restricted by having done a project. Uh, far away. Absolutely, yeah. and that's one of the reasons I wanted to work on this project yeah. so close to home, so that I could really explore it rather than just, you know, spend a month Dipping somewhere. And it's very hard, you know, it takes longer than a month sometimes to, to, to earn trust and to yeah. find out the situation. And so have you built up solid relationships with the volunteers and with the recipients that are maintained? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've, I can, I'm still in contact with them. I will deliver, donate to them. So yes, I get the odd text now and again from from the three people that I, I worked with, which Great. is nice. And I and I will ask them how they're getting on as well. Yeah. And are they still needing the support of the food bank? A couple of them are, yes. Yeah. So people listening, if they're interested in finding out about donating food, is there a way to find out where your nearest donation point is? Yes, there is, and actually it is on the Trussell Trust website, right. and other food banks are available. 
I just don't know where. Yeah. Um, but the Trussell Trust are the largest, and you can put your postcode in, and it will tell you where your nearest food bank is, and from there they'll tell you where your nearest food bank dump bin, which yeah. supermarkets are are using that. Right. Great. You've said that you feel that you're at a point where you can approach um, newspapers, mainstream media. Have you had any people come to you and actually approach you about publishing your work? Not yet, no. I'm not, it's, it's interesting because I'm not really a sort of newspaper, even though I produced a newspaper, I'm not really a newspaper type photographer right. um, at all. So, uh, you know, it's very hard to, but in a way that's why the newspaper was perfect. So I had so, so many pages and so much scope to talk about my work. Yeah. So I'd be quite, I'd find it quite hard to cut it down to just sort of three images and a couple of paragraphs of text because it's, it's a body of, of work. Mm. So in one way I'm reluctant, but in another right. way, so I think the web actually is a much better place for me to, to put this work. We can keep everything up there. Yeah, it's true. Going beyond the dedicated website, if you yeah. were to, to ever get and uh, the t-shirts and, and, the t and all that, <laughs> and, and the baseball caps. An interactive documentary, I don't know if you've ever explored that, because you, you say that you're exploring multimedia at present, and I've, I've looked at uh, interactive documentaries and I, I just feel that they're a fantastic means in which to communicate effectively and, uh, with a wider audience and, and really engage them and create an immersive experience that, that informs and empowers the individuals that actually explore uh, the documentary. And I think, I think this project would lend itself really well to, to that format and because it's got all these layers and it's got all these stories and, and all these individuals so if uh, that, that might be another thing that you might want to that's look at that's two beers <laughs> <laughs> you, I think. because uh, there is a one there, there's one in particular it's an award winning one uh, done by High Rise and I think it's, it's called Out My Window so it's all these people in tar blocks around the world and uh, just their stories individual stories but the way that it's done on the website is just it's beautifully done and right. um, so you click through all the all these kind of interactive elements to the website and then you click through into their household and you've got other another layer of interactivity mm. and you click through on that and it can be a, a, a slideshow of images with some audio narration or it can be a, a 360 degree video all these different elements very immersive experience and and it just has you has you gripped for ages, Hours. Mm. yeah, wow. because you want to explore, and I think that's that's one of the benefits currently because it's it's just starting to build up. Now is the time where you can really engage people because there will come a point in time, no doubt, in the future where people are just saturated by it, and so they they don't explore it in the same depth as they do now because there's that novelty. Yeah, factor. do you, do you know how? Like how popular that, that sort of site is. Because I mean, it sounds amazing, especially to us, but I wonder how many people sit down and spend the time sort of clicking through everything and really exploring. Give it a go yourself. Yeah. I think you'll find in no, France. No, I would, but I'm, you're preaching to the converted. But I mean, Even because people kind of want, sometimes they want a quick, like quick images, don't they, to take it in quickly. But that's why this, because of the novelty of it, yeah, um, yeah. That's, you, you can play to that and use that novelty. Well, it sounds almost like a sort of computer game. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So you're going from on one levels. section to the next yeah. section. Yeah. But in France, great. it's been really embraced and it's supported widely. Uh, lots of opportunities to get funding in France, but in the UK, for some reason, it's, there's this slow, mm. uh, slow build-up. It's, it's slow to pick it up. But hopefully, I think it's the future, and I think multimedia. That's a fascinating idea, does, especially yeah. with food banks, because they are, I mean, they're popping up in France. Obviously, they started in the States in 1960-something. Right. Yeah, so exactly. there are so many countries that are using this system mm. of donating food and passing it on. And also the historical evolution of it, that would be interesting to map as well. Yeah. Because it, we're in a time where in theory things should be getting better, there should be progress, um, but the disparity between rich and poor is growing and, and the need for food banks is growing. Absolutely. Mm. So having, having that historical kind of context I'm sure will be... And, the, and those struggling now are not the ones who you assume are struggling, but it's sort of the layers are growing and growing mm -hmm. of, of the different areas of society that are finding it really, really tough. Yeah. 
And is there an average period in which a person kind of needs to be reliant on on the food bank? Is that a statistic? Well, it's, it's supposed to be just three vouchers per year. Right. Wow. This emergency emergency yeah. fund. Yeah. But you know, people are going back sort of three times a month. Yeah. And there isn't a restriction on people going back. I think it's hard to turn people away. Sure. When when they're in genuine need. It's really difficult. Taking the focus away from Food Bank Britain, you, you've got a lot of experience working with NGOs. How have you gone about getting commissioned by the NGOs that you've worked with? I started out by working on a project in Romania in 1995, I, I think it was. And I wanted to do a project. It was when we were being sort of saturated with images of orphans from the sort of Ceausescu fallout. And I really wanted to see where the money that was being donated by so many people, where it was going. You know, people needed to see something a bit more positive. Mm -hmm. So I contacted the Romanian Orphanage Trust and told them what I wanted to do and would I be able to go and, and do that. And they said, yes, fantastic, come out and, and photograph. And I, I went out there quite naively. I thought, right, I'm going to do something completely different. I'm not going to photograph these poor children with beautiful big brown eyes. But actually, I ended up taking a lot of children looking sad with big brown eyes because that's what was put in front of me. And it was very hard not to photograph something else because they actually felt that that was how they were going to raise money. Raise money, yeah. And a few years later, they asked me back to do a much more positive project. They were beginning to try and keep children in families, so they were um, giving families support financially to keep their own children so that they weren't being fostered out or, or, uh, or adopted out of the country. So that was a much more positive take on, on what was going on. So it's just a question really of, of going around and really believing passionately in, in the cause that you want to, to photograph and why you want to photograph it. That's, that's how I've, I've managed to get my, my work. So do you tend to approach the NGOs and, yes. and sometimes they'll come back to you once you've done the yes. first project? Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. my name has been passed on to, to NGOs as well. But mainly it's been repeat, repeat commissions from NGOs. What do you think the current climate's like in terms of somebody new trying to access that kind of genre, that market, the NGO market? It's really hard, actually. Because more and more people have cameras, iPhones, etc., and the power of photograph isn't understood by so many people, Mm. that it's getting harder and harder to finance yourself working in in that area. Your Antarctica visit, you were saying, so that was done in partnership with um, scientists on the ground, is that right? So for me, this is, this is possibly a way forward. Um, is that partnership, creating, getting an academic and a photographer, and then creating that partnership? Because it, it's just, it's uh, symbiotic, it, it's mutually beneficial, and it'll help with the research but then also get that research into the public domain uh, in a visual way, ultimately. But, but still, it, it, it means that it's not going to be locked up in academia and never seen. How was your experience working with scientists on, on that level? Well, unfortunately, my, my relationship with the scientists broke down before I even hit the Antarctic continent oh because they, hadn't, they didn't want me to be part of their uh, renovations. And uh, so that's when my whole project kind of turned on its head and became a much more personal thing rather than working with the scientists to show how they're keeping these incredible huts that were built 100 years ago still standing on the edge of the Antarctic plateau. So it was difficult, but I, I definitely would like to to explore more projects like that. Yeah, I can't think of names, but <laughs> of course, but I've actually yeah, I've seen two really good examples of that. One we saw together, I think, at um, Photo 8, and the other is also about um, second-hand, the second-hand clothing. That's Tim Mitchell. Yeah, yeah. and there's a photographer, yeah. Mm. yeah. They're both really, really good examples of how that works really well. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, think, I, I think there's a lot of potential for I agree. It to, to do a lot of good. And an alternative to the NGO route yes, in terms of trying definitely. to create positive change yeah. uh, through photography.
Yeah. Are there any documentary photographers that you know of that are working local, uh, on, on local stories um, that have inspired you? Well, it would be ignorant of me not to mention J.A. Mottram and his small town in Asia. I mean, that's just an incredible project, and he's an incredible man, mm. and very giving uh, of his time and his knowledge and experience. So for me, I, it'd be really hard to come up with a, a second choice after that, because he is, he is just so, so brilliant, especially you know, here in the UK, working on, on smaller projects. And it's something that he's continually evolving and continually working on, and is extremely passionate about. And are there any exhibitions that you're going to go to today? Um, hit list of things to see while you're in London? Uh, yes, I'm going to go off to see the Tony Ray Jones exhibition at the Media Space, I think it is, in the Science Museum. Great. So that's where I'm heading off to next. Great. Yeah, I still need to go and check that out, that new space. And it's very exciting to have that here. Mm. Yeah. And where can people find your work online? Uh, they can find my work at hannamornament.com and soon to be a dedicated food bank <laughs> website. Yeah. Great. Looking forward to seeing you. Well, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank really you very interesting much. interesting to talk to you. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Documentary Photography Review podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Hannah Morneman. You can see the images for Food Bank Britain and find out about this project and the rest of her work at hannahmornament.com. As always, links to photographers, exhibitions, organisations and so on mentioned in this podcast are listed in the show notes available at documentaryphotoreview.com forward slash podcasts and then navigate to Hannah's interview. Listed in these is a link to locate your nearest food bank, so if you are interested in giving food, do check that out. If you're a documentary photographer and would like to have your work featured on the Documentary Photography Review website, then get in touch via email on chris at documentaryphotoreview.com or you can submit your images via the website. Unlike this podcast series, which focuses on stories local to the photographer, the website showcases any project from anywhere in the world, as long as they are documentary in nature. For more information and to have a look at the projects already on the site, go to documentaryphotoreview.com. If you enjoyed this interview or any others in the series so far, then please do rate it and leave a comment or review via iTunes. This will help us be seen and heard by more people, spreading the word about this podcast series, but also about the important work of the photographers we interview. You can also subscribe to the podcast via iTunes to make sure you don't miss out on the fortnightly interviews. The next one will be released on the 15th of March. Thanks again for listening and take care.